Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast. I'm your host, Sean McGregor. In order to really understand what happened on the night of March 26, 1973, I needed to hit the bricks, as they say. I had to get out onto the street and see the actual places where these events really happened. I wanted to go to all the locations I had read about. 20th Street, Quincy Avenue, Virginia Street, and Washington Avenue, and also the beach off Main Street where Tina was found. I wanted to put myself in Tina's eyes that night, get a feel for the neighborhood and surrounding areas. What part of town did this all happen in? I grew up in or near a scene my entire life, but I wasn't too familiar with this section of town. But the main question is, where to begin? The timeline started at Tina's house on 20th Street, so that would be where I would start this investigation. I knew that Tina's mother had passed away in 2012, but numerous people told me that Tina's sister, Bonnie, still lived in the house. I used my internet detective skills to verify these leads, and it turned out that, yes, she did still live there. I was nervous driving there. What was my plan exactly? Just knock on the door? Hope that she would greet me with a warm smile and invite me in? Show me pictures she still had of Tina? Or would she yell at me? Curse me out? Tell me to get lost and slam the door in my face? I had no idea what would happen, but I was willing to take a chance. I wanted to know more about Tina. What type of person was she? What was she into? What kind of friends did she hang out with? I didn't want this podcast to just be about her gruesome murder. I wanted to put Tina, the person, into the spotlight instead of Tina, the victim. Bonnie was seven years older than Tina. Surely she'd remember her, but would she even talk to me? I was hoping she would. I was keeping my fingers crossed that she would fill me in and all the details that I have no way of knowing about. I was more than nervous driving to her house. To be honest, I was terrified. I'd never done anything like this before in my life. I'm not an investigator, or a police officer, or a reporter, or a journalist. I'm not even a professional podcaster. I dressed nice. I wanted to look respectable. I wanted to be seen as someone you would want to talk to. I wanted my good intentions to be cleared. This was by far the scariest thing I'd done in a long time. My little brother had died. I don't know how I'd react if a stranger showed up at my doorstep asking to talk about his death, especially if it was a brutal, unsolved murder. I don't think it would matter if the murder happened two days ago or 
45 years ago, I don't imagine that I would react well. It was a typical cold and gray April day in Racine. It was also just a few weeks after the anniversary of Tina's death. I parked on the road and I took a breath. Well, here goes nothing. I walked up to the house with my leather binder and notebook in hand. It was a small bluish house on the corner of an alleyway. Racine had tons of shortcuts through alleys in this part of town. The window shades were closed and it looked very dark inside. I rang the doorbell and waited. I waited for what seemed like an eternity, but no one answered. All I could hear was the cold wind blowing through some wind chimes and traffic in the distance. No one was home. If they were, no one wanted to answer. I opened my notebook and I wrote a note. I explained who I was what my intentions were, and added the webpage address and my phone number, and I left it in her mailbox. I retreated back to the warmth of my car, and I left. Would she call me? Would she check the webpage before making any decisions? Would she even get the note? Maybe she'd glance at it, think it was junk, simply crumple it into a ball and toss it into the garbage. I had no way of knowing. So... Instead of pondering, I moved on to my next stop. I drove over to Quincy Avenue and made my way over to Virginia Street, eventually reaching Washington Avenue. The houses were all pretty similar, mostly narrow, two-story homes with large porches, no real big yards, only a few feet in between each house. Alleyways and sidewalks framed the blocks. I didn't have any exact addresses, so I couldn't pinpoint any of the exact houses. I honestly couldn't learn a lot about that night from driving around the neighborhood. Perhaps next time I decide to go pretend to be a detective, I'll get out of my car and actually walk the route. I guess hindsight is always twenty-twenty. My next stop would be a rough one. The scene of the crime... I was still thinking about the note I left in Bonnie's mailbox. I should have written something better. Perhaps I should have typed something up. I kept hoping my phone would ring. I checked my email at red lights, but nothing. I tried to clear my mind as I pulled up to the beach. The road that led to the beach was short and came to an end with a small cement circle for cars to park on. There was a car with an older couple parked there in the circle, and a van with another couple parked on the street. I parked in front of the van and made my way down the small gravel walkway along the large rocks which met the angry waves of Lake Michigan. Within 20 feet, I was literally standing on the beach where Tina was found. The sound of the waves and the seagulls made everything seem very eerie, very somber. I saw a piece of plastic off to the side, and I couldn't help but think, maybe that's where Tina took her final breath. It was very cold down by the water. We have something called lake effect. 
It's always at least 10 degrees colder down by Lake Michigan. The wind hit hard straight off the water, and I couldn't help but shiver. I was bundled up in a wool winter coat, a hat, and a sweater, but I was still cold. The weather was about the same as it was 45 years ago, just above freezing. I couldn't imagine laying on this beach, nude, being stabbed 61 times in the neck and chest, feeling the rocky sand underneath me as I bled out. The thought sent chills down my spine. After some meditation, I took a few pictures and a short video, which I'll post on the webpage. But as I was preparing to leave, I saw a city parks worker parked in his work truck in the small cement parking area taking his lunch. He was an older gentleman. He looked like a nice individual, and I'd already knocked on Tina's sister's door today, so I figured, might as well. I cleared my throat and started to walk over to him. He saw me approaching and rolled down his window before I got to his truck. He greeted me with a friendly, hey, how's it going? I responded with a casual, good, before asking him how long he had worked for the parks department. He told me about five years or so. I asked him if he had lived in Racine for long. He said, oh yeah, which made it sound like he'd been in town for quite some time. I asked him if he knew anything about Tina Davison. He didn't. I explained what had happened, how they found the body right here on this very beach. He was pretty surprised. He never heard of Tina or her story. That's one of the main reasons I'm doing this podcast. How can such a horrible murder in such a small town fade so much from everyone's memory? Is it something that people don't want to remember? Or is it just easier to forget? That's something I didn't want to do. That's how cold cases remain unsolved and the victims are eventually forgotten. I apologized for disturbing his lunch and I thanked him for his time. He wished me luck. I'd need it. I was off to my next location, the Racine Library, to dig through 45 years worth of news archives. When I got to the library, I went to the help desk. Despite growing up around here, I've never been to this library. The nice woman showed me the microfilm and briefly explained how to work the machine. I'd never done anything like this. I'd seen it done in the movies, but I myself had not even thought about this kind of thing since I was in grade school. She gave me two boxes of microfilm to start with. One from March of 1973 and one from April of 1973. It took a couple hours of flipping through each micro news page, but eventually I found a few articles. I'll post some of them on the webpage, but I'd like to talk about a few of them now. An article from March 28th listed Mrs. Mildred Johnson of 1635 South Wisconsin Avenue as the woman who had found Tina. She was quoted as saying, I've been walking along that beach for ages, and I've never taken that particular path to get over to DeCoven Avenue. I don't know what made me do it yesterday. One was from April 1st, 1973, the day after Tina was laid to rest. It also would have been her birthday. 
The headline read, Tina Davison had been happier than ever before. This echoed what I had read from Principal Curlin. Tina, the shy, timid, defenseless girl, was coming out of her shell at the academy. Just because a student is declared a, quote, trouble student, doesn't mean that they're a bad person. I was technically a trouble student as well. I'd left my high school at the end of my junior year and finished my senior year at the local college because I was a, quote, trouble student. My problems were very much the same as Tina's. I didn't like the school, just like how Tina didn't like her high school. It wasn't that we were bad kids, or violent, or dumb, or any of the stigmas attached to such a school. Not every kid learns the same way, and not every kid can adhere to the same schedule. Some people are born night owls. Some are early birds. Some learn visually, and some need hands-on training. What's that saying? Never judge a book by its cover. An article from April 2nd gave me more details on the man from the ice cream shop. I'll be covering him more in-depth in the next episode. It also said police were searching for an older model car. Dark blue at the top, light blue on the sides, and dark blue on the bottom. Police said it was seen leaving the 17th Street area shortly before the body of Tina was discovered. A witness said that two white juvenile males were in the car. Police were looking to question them. I wonder if they ever did get to question them. One last article I found was from Sunday, May 6th. The headline read, Big Sisters Are Grateful. It went on, Quote, To the editors, The Big Sisters Are Grateful to those who donated to the Tina Davison Memorial Fund. It was very gratifying to the Big Sisters to receive your gifts and support. We feel rewarded to know that there are people in the community becoming aware of the kind of help and friendship we can offer young girls. Tina will certainly be remembered through your thoughtfulness. I'm sure I speak for all members of Big Sisters when I offer our sincere thanks. Anyone in the community interested in adding to this memorial to Tina Davison can be assured that the money will be well used to help girls needing a special friend. We are also always in need of women wishing to give this friendship as big sisters. It was signed, Mrs. James Calkin, president of Big Sisters. That stuck out to me and made me smile a little bit. At least some good was coming from this. A small beacon of light in the vast darkness. Snow was beginning to fall as I left the library. I stopped by my car to chug what was left of my cold gas station coffee. Then I started my 10-block walk to the Racine Police Department. I had conquered my fear of knocking on Tina's sister's door. I approached a stranger on the beach regarding Tina's murder. But now, I was going to stroll right into the Racine Police Department like I belonged there and start asking questions. Seemed like a good plan, right? When I got inside... There was a red line on the floor, two glass windows ahead of me, and a sign that firmly stated, Wait to be called. I stood there patiently, obeying the sign's stern command, and I waited to be called. 
Eventually, a woman waved me over to one of the windows from her desk. I walked up to the window and smiled. She asked how she could help me. I told her I was looking to either speak with someone or set up a time to speak with an investigator regarding a cold case. She appeared confused, and I didn't blame her. She asked what investigator was working on the case. But I didn't know. I should have. I should have been more prepared. But even if I did know, what were the odds that an investigator from 1973 was still working in 2018? That's what quickly ran through my mind. But looking back at it, I'm sure she was probably asking which investigator was currently working on the cold case. I told her I wasn't sure. She looked even more confused, and I started to feel uncomfortable. She picked up the phone and dialed a number. I was starting to feel like I was a suspect, even though I wasn't even born when Tina was murdered. It felt like when you're driving the speed limit, obeying the law, but an officer pulls out behind you, and you instantly feel like you're going to get pulled over. You know you aren't doing anything wrong, but that feeling still lingers. I could hear her explain to the person on the other end of the phone who I was and what I was inquiring about. She would give me the occasional glance every so often, softly nodding her head as she listened to the mystery voice on the other end of the phone. After a few minutes, she hung up and came over to the glass window I was standing in front of. She wrote down a name and a phone number on a small piece of paper and slid it to me under the window. Deputy Chief Schultz. She told me to contact him and he'd be able to help me. I thanked her and I quickly made my exit. I wasn't about to call him on my cold, windy walk back to the car. I'd wait until I was in a warm, quiet area. Also, I'd hopefully be a little more prepared when I spoke with him. I felt a little disappointed by my lack of findings. I'd not been able to speak to Tina's sister nor was I able to speak to any investigators. But I was able to locate the house, the beach, and a few really good news articles. I was basically learning on the job, but I was learning fast. So I tried not to be too hard on myself. Walking back through downtown Racine, I started to think about how much different Racine probably looks today as opposed to 1973. But as different as it looked today... A lot still looked the same as I remember from my childhood back in the mid to late 80s. The buildings were slightly improved, trying to revitalize a dying area. Most of the shops were abandoned and empty, though. There were mattresses discarded on the sidewalk in front of the doorways. It's definitely not your typical downtown metropolis. It's not New York City, downtown Chicago, or even downtown Milwaukee for that matter no skyscrapers. The tallest building is four or five stories at the most. The typical height is only like three stories tall. Similar in style to a Boston area. Just long, slim buildings cemented together. One block equals six doors that are only about 12 feet wide. Once I got back to my car, I warmed up a little bit and then I dialed the number of the deputy chief. No luck. I had one more stop before heading home. I wanted to find Tina's grave. I knew what section she was buried in, 
and the plot number, but the cemetery is a fairly large one. There's no map, no directions, no help finding a grave at all. You can't enter the plot number into Google Maps. There are section numbers on signs, but they're small, and they're hung on the water spigots on the side of the road. I drove through the cemetery very slowly for a good half hour or 45 minutes. I knew what section she was in, section 10, but I could not find it. found almost every other section in the cemetery. First, I found section 1, then section 20, kind of odd, section 4, and then section 15. Apparently, uh, they don't go in order. Section 9, got to be getting close. What's that next sign say? Section 9 again. I was driving very slowly, trying to read the small signs and not look like a total weirdo. Section 8, Section 12. I couldn't find Section 10 anywhere. Finally, I just stopped. I picked out a random headstone and went to the Find a Grave webpage to see what section that grave was located in. I typed in the name, date of birth, and date of death into the search function and hit enter. Sure enough, that grave was located in section 10, the same section as Tina. I thought to myself, well, might as well get out and start my search here. The section was surrounded by roads on all ends, so I knew where it started and where it ended but there were still hundreds of headstones in the section. I took a breath and started walking. I literally took 10 steps and I stopped. I was standing in front of Tina's headstone. I have to admit, it kind of hit me. I was like, wow, here it is. This is her final resting place. I got the same kind of feeling as when I went down to the beach, somber and surreal. This wasn't just someone I was reading about on the internet anymore. This is real. Below me, in this grave, is what is left of this young girl. Young girl who had her entire life ahead of her. A young girl who was brutally murdered and her killer has never been brought to justice. Her killer, or killers, have never been forced to pay for the crime or provide answers. What really hit me hard was that there was no one buried next to her, just a big, empty space, a void. I knew that her mother had passed away, but I was not able to find where she was buried. I now know that she wasn't buried next to her daughter, I couldn't find much about her father, but if he was the same age as her mother, I could only assume that he had passed away as well. From what I read, he skipped out pretty early in Tina's life. I couldn't find a grave for him either, but he wasn't next to Tina. So now, Tina lies the same way she did on March 27, 1973, by herself, no one next to her alone that angers me and that makes me want to find answers that much more unfortunately the more I look into this 
the more questions I'm left with. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group. Just search Facebook for Searching for Closure, the Tina Davison Cold Case Podcast. Every time I post a new episode, I'll also be posting a new blog entry with notes or pictures or videos. You can find everything at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and spread the word of Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves to be closed. Until next time, thank you for listening.